0: They say there are no two neighbours more diverse than Australia and Indonesia. But we think more alike than you know. Welcome to OzIndo in 30. I'm Samantha Yap. Gojek and Atlassian are the billion-dollar startup success stories of Indonesia and Australia that are spearheading disruptive innovation in the region. In other words, their growth has sparked the rise of startups that aim to generate value for society and essentially enhance people's lives. The scale and pace of innovation in both countries has often clashed with regulation because, while healthy competition is beneficial to the ecosystem, the growth can also pose a risk to consumers if not regulated well. But Jeff Garzik, one of Bitcoin's most respected developers, said rigid regulation will only be a catalyst for change that creates a new different world. In this episode, we ask our guests, Jared Heath and Aditya Tumakaka, who work as lawyers, about their thoughts on striking the right balance between innovation and regulation. I'm joined now by Jared Heath. Jared Heath is a Special Consul at Cause Chambers Westgarth in Melbourne. He has a wealth of government advisory experience advising on significant legislative, regulatory and policy reviews. Jared has also previously completed a secondment as International Consul at Samadhi Praja and Tahir, one of Indonesia's leading law firms. Jared joins me now at the Cause office in Melbourne. Hi, Jared. Thank you for joining us on the program.
1: Hi, Samantha. Thank you for that kind introduction.
0: Firstly, can you tell me a little bit more about your background and how you became a lawyer at CAUSE?
1: So I knew from a very young age, Samantha, that I wanted to be a lawyer, probably from the age of about eight or nine. And so all through high school and then when I did my law degree at the University of Melbourne, I knew that when I finished, I wanted to try practising as a lawyer. When you're at law school, you get the opportunity to apply to do clerkships at some of the big law firms, and that gives you and the law firm a chance to try each other out and see whether there's a good fit. And so at the end of having done a number of clerkships, I ended up deciding that I wanted to apply and come and work at Cause chambers Westgarth. And I'm one of those people that started as a graduate, and we won't say how many years, but a certain number of years later, here I am still working at Cause.
0: Could you tell me a bit about the experience that you had in Jakarta?
1: I had a great time uh, living and working in Jakarta. It was my first visit to Indonesia. So unlike many other Australians who might have been to Bali on holidays, I hadn't been to Indonesia before. But I had always thought that it was a really important country to Australia's international um, set of relationships with other places. And so when the opportunity arose through cause which has a relationship with Samadhi Praja and Taher, to go and work there as international counsel, I was really enthusiastic about that possibility. It was a great chance to live in a different country, experience life in a big cosmopolitan city like Jakarta, uh, to experience what it's like working with a whole range of different laws and clients. So it really was a complete change from life here in Melbourne. Uh, I found Indonesia to be a wonderfully exciting and interesting place. I found the Indonesian people, both my colleagues and others I got to meet while I was there, to be incredibly warm and funny and engaging. And uh, I'm really glad that I had that chance to experience life there and now to continue the relationship with all my Indonesian friends and colleagues.
0: As a lawyer that had experience working in Australia and and then working in Indonesia, could you give me some examples of the differences that you found?
1: So I guess there's a number of technical differences between Australian law and Indonesian law. Australian law we inherited from the British colonial system, whereas the Indonesian legal system has been inherited from the Dutch colonial system. And so there are slight differences in the way law is practised in those two different original colonial powers but now obviously in Australia and Indonesia. There's also differences because of um, population, of um, economic development and a range of other factors which means that the state of the law in both countries is slightly different. Probably as a question of volume there's much more legislation in Australia In Indonesia, there's probably on a proportionate basis more uh, regulation and policy guidelines that perhaps sit around the law compared to what we have here in Australia. And I think that one of the other really big differences which informs both legal questions but also just doing business generally is the really important part that relationships play in Indonesia. Here in Australia, often businesses are quite transactional that you do a deal, that you sign a contract, if there's an issue you will enforce the contract and you'll move on to the next relationship. In Indonesia, it's much more important to have an effective relationship. You might negotiate the contract, but as someone once said, if you have the relationship without the contract, then it doesn't really matter if you do have the contract or not. But if you only have the contract and no relationship, Well, then the contract won't solve any problems for you at the end of the day.
0: During your time in Indonesia, you were a COSINDI 2014 delegate. Could you tell me a little bit more about your experience on the conference and what you got out of being a part of COSINDY?
1: Well, COSINDY was a great opportunity to get to know a group of both young Australian and young Indonesian leaders who had the chance to come together during the conference and really both hear from other experts, business, governmental, diplomatic um, leaders, but also to have a dialogue with each other and to learn more. And I found that to be incredibly valuable, to be able to talk to 15 other you know, young Indonesian leaders and hear their perspectives on the world um, and to learn from each other uh, was really, I think, the highlight of the experience.
0: In Jakarta, Aditya Tumakaka shares his thoughts on regulation and innovation with my colleague Narina. Adit is a Juris Doctor graduate from the University of Melbourne and has practiced law in both Indonesia and Australia. Hello, Adit.
2: Hi guys, Aditya
0: here. Apa kabar? How are you?
2: Baik, baik. <laughs>
3: Okay, I did first question for you. Who did inspire you to become a lawyer?
2: Um, so, who inspired me to become a lawyer? That would be my grandfather, uh, J.K. Tumakaka. He used to work as one of the ministers during the Sukarno cabinet. And he was also serving as a public prosecutor in Sulawesi before.
3: When was the first time you professionally practiced as an advocate?
2: I started pretty young. It was actually around, I think it was when I was twenty-first years old. Uh, I just graduated from Atmajaya uh, Law Faculty, and now here I am.
3: So, how did you end up with mostly commercial deals when still practicing in Indonesia?
2: Basically, my background during my undergrad law studies was was more into uh, international law, which is more into like government to government or state versus state type of deals. Uh, But then I realized I'm more of a practical guy. I like uh, seeing get things done in the way that I want. Uh, and I want to see the results quickly as well. So then I realized that even from a commercial uh, work that I do now, I can still um, um, make some change in the society, or even for Indonesia itself as well.
3: All right. And how, how has your knowledge in legal practice from Australia and Indonesia shaped you now as a professional?
2: Um, I think it complements both. Uh, in a way that my Indonesian practice sort of complements my um, Australian uh, studies as well and vice versa. We, as an Indonesian lawyer, I have to admit that Indonesian law are still far behind from being well-developed right now. There's so much, um, not even grey area, sometimes a black hole area that is not understandable even among lawyers or even uh, among... um, uh, legal scholars as well and so having um, studying Jewish Doctor at Melbourne Law School and having spent spending some time practicing in in Australia um, I think I sort of start to see things comparatively.
3: You were hosting the 2014 delegate and how did that experience contribute to your career in legal practice?
2: Being a professional in certain area does uh, make your mind to start to think narrowly causing the uh, discussions or the conference itself and the networks that i built there i think uh, opened up my eyes and opened up my horizon as to the diverse perspectives of problems and challenges and opportunities that exist in the relation of the two countries
0: Entrepreneurs can come up with the best ideas, but implementing them and adhering to the appropriate regulation is the tricky part. Our guests Jared and Aditya tell us how Indonesia and Australia deal with regulation differently from their experiences working as lawyers in both countries. Striking the right balance between regulation and innovation is often difficult for governments because on one hand they want to ensure a healthy development of new innovations, but also protect society. So in your experience working in your legal career, how do regulators first deal with new innovations?
1: Well, I think taking a step back, one of the challenges for government in dealing with innovation is that it might have quite different policy objectives. So on the one hand, government might want to help drive innovation because innovation might lead to better outcomes both for the government itself, uh, but also for the people that it serves and it represents. And so what I mean by that is, the government might, for example, want to build a piece of new infrastructure. And what they want to have achieved through that is the very best, most innovative form of that infrastructure. But in order to drive that, the government has obviously formed the view that it might be best to get that innovation from the private sector, rather than the government producing it itself. So there has to be mechanisms designed in the process of getting that infrastructure to drive those innovative outcomes. At the same time, sometimes government is concerned about innovation. Innovation might move so quickly that if there isn't regulation, there could be adverse effects for the public. So new technology for example can be a fantastic way of saving time and labour but it also might have risks and so there needs to be appropriate regulation to protect the public. An example of that might be driverless cars. So driverless cars have great potential to liberate people from the task of actually driving so that they can do other things while they're in transit but also increasing safety ultimately if you take the unpredictability of the human element out of the driving. But until the technology is refined, there are risks, as we've seen from various news stories, around technology like driverless cars. And so there needs to be regulation in place to protect consumers, to protect the public, until it's reached a state of evolution um, where it's safe. The other thing that government would be concerned about, aside from just protecting the public, might be to seek to serve other public goods. So being able to regulate particular types of commercial activity as a basis for taxation and generating public revenue, or to indeed protect the public from certain other social harms uh, that might be perceived to exist through particular forms of innovation.
0: So using ride-sharing apps in Indonesia as an example, in the past there have been riots from angry taxi drivers protesting against apps like Gojek and Uber. How should the law handle, you know, this conflict between, in this case, conventional drivers and companies and growing ride-sharing apps?
1: Well, ride-sharing is a really interesting example of how there have been developments both in Australia and in Indonesia that have probably been, in the first case, um, faster than government has been to catch up with regulation. So, here in, in Australia, for example, we had the growth of Uber. Um, Uber, which wasn't subject to the same regulation as the taxi industry, which then, understandably, wanted to make sure that there was some sort of equitable platform to protect the investment that they may have made in the taxi business, which was now being undercut by Uber, and also to ensure consumer safety in terms of the product that was delivered. At the same time, Uber was successful because it was going to the market with a product that was seen as different and in some cases, depending on one's perspective, better than the service that was being offered by taxis. And so what we've seen is government around Australia and in other countries catching up with regulation to try and address a range of policy issues including consumer protection, taxation and equitable treatment of similar forms of services. In Indonesia, what we saw was the advent of Gojek, GoCar and other services. And Grab. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, other services which were important to fill a need in the market, uh, but again provoked ultimately a regulatory response, which was designed to ensure that there was the capacity for government to maintain a level playing field between different participants in that particular market.
0: It sounds like, yes, of course, governments and, and the law would like to protect conventional drivers, like for example taxi drivers, but and also for safety reasons as well, have you know that regulation be put in place. but some would argue that if you put too much regulation in place, then it kind of stifles that new technology or that new company or startup to grow. Do you have any thoughts on striking that balance?
1: I think it's a difficult balance to strike and it will be different in different cultural settings. So that one of the things that's often said is that um, there's too much red tape here in Australia, there's too much regulation that you have to follow. But I've heard people say the same thing about doing business in Indonesia, that there's a lot of paperwork that you have to get right. Ultimately, the test is what's the substance of the regulation if it's serving a legitimate purpose and it's easy enough to comply with, uh, then that's probably not overregulation. regulation If, however, it's too cumbersome for business or for consumers to understand, to comply with and ultimately to go about doing what they want to do, uh, then that's when it might become problematic and potentially stifling of innovation. So it's a, it's a balance that needs to be struck in mind Uh, of the different objectives that government might have, but also preserving a market which is driven by private sector innovation. And one of the real things that I think drives innovation in Indonesia is is this fantastic um, entrepreneurial um, spirit, particularly amongst um, young Indonesians. So it's no surprise that you see these sorts of apps coming out. You see high levels of social media usage, um, even higher than... Probably in Australia, amongst um, young Indonesians. So I think that natural spirit to innovate uh, and to develop new business will always be there. It's a way. It's a question of how you channel that spirit in a way that uh, can be shaped, but not stifled by regulation.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that in both countries there's a lot of red tape, but I can imagine that that red tape is actually different. It means different things in both countries. Could you? delve more specifically into what the differences are?
1: It's a really good question. I think that um, at a very broad level, at a high level, um, you'd probably find that, as I said before, there's a lot more legal requirements to comply with potentially in Australia, but more paperwork to comply with potentially in Indonesia. So that's to say that you might have to get more forms um, or permits or licences, Um uh, issued by government departments in Indonesia, and if you fail to have the right paperwork in the right form, um, that can lead to significant challenges in terms of operating in that environment. In, in Australia, you may not need quite so many forms, um, and the test of whether or not uh, you've complied might turn less on the form of the actual legal document, but whether you've complied as a matter of substance with it. So. That's not to simply say that um, the difference is only about uh, paperwork versus substantive compliance, but that's one element that might be slightly different between the two.
0: Do you have any suggestions on how governments can deal with facilitating innovation?
1: I think there's a necessary part of allowing um, developments to unfold. You don't want government to be uh, acting too precipitously so that innovation can't develop but also you don't want them to lag too far behind developments lest there be adverse outcomes for business or consumers. So it's getting that timing right. It's also recognising that not all of the expertise will necessarily exist within government. It needs to partner with academia and with business to understand what's happening. So that if it has good links to other sources of advice, um, coupled with its own regulatory expertise, in particular areas of subject matter um, knowledge, then it's probably best placed to be able to make that call as to what the right balance is to strike between stifling um, innovation at the outset or not regulating sufficiently uh, during the course of development. And so I think the best examples are where there's plenty of industry um, or stakeholder consultation, so it's developed collaboratively and then it's tested and refined over time. So it's not a set-and-forget type approach to regulation, it's adjusted and calibrated as there's market developments and as the technology changes.
3: Adit, since you have many experiences in commercial deals, how do you see the current trend of startups in Indonesia?
2: Um, I think Indonesian startups are pretty much in their peak time right now. Um, the hardest part for tech startups in Indonesia will be to build the ecosystem. From the government um, part, I've seen some initiatives taken place, like from the uh, Ministry of SMEs, in which they uh, grant uh, several grants for um, uh, startups. That's that's they think uh, potential for the economy. Um, from the banking, um, from the banking uh, industry, I saw some uh, some support as well, because they have. Created some uh, credit lines or some products that will be able to uh, support startups in Indonesia. I think the one that has the biggest impact or that that makes the the Indonesian people understands the importance of startups will be like apps like Gojek because people pretty much use that and it makes our life easier, especially in Jakarta.
3: I was wondering, yeah. like. Um, mm-hmm is the um, legal certainty or what you call it in legal term is it part of the ecosystem that you mentioned because in the previous session you said that um, legal system in Indonesia is not in grey area, it also includes a black hole is that also a challenge or how yeah. do you uh, explain that?
2: I think it provides us with a challenge as well as opportunities um, being lowly regulated means that there are a lot of areas and um, opportunities that hasn't been discovered or hasn't been regulated yet. And I know business people tend to think sometimes, not all, but sometimes, they would think that um, it's better to ask for forgiveness rather than to ask for permission. So having a low regulations means that could, they could invent so much, they could develop their, their niche areas in a way that they want and there's not much of a restrictions. On the other side, being or having a non-restriction sometimes makes you a bit wary, makes you a bit um, anxious that you might have stumbled on something, that you might have uh, breached certain provisions in the Indonesian legal regulations. And that's, I think, where the lawyers and the regulators uh, part will come will come as well.
3: How important is knowledge of regulation compared to network in building startups?
2: I think in Indonesia it's it's best to basically have a, a good knowledge of regulation first. Why? Because that gives you a solid ground to develop your, um, your startups, your companies, your business models. Um, Understanding the regulation means that you understand what are the challenges and, and so you can create the, your business model in the, in the spectrum of the regulation itself. I think having the regulation first is a good thing because you don't want to go up to the regulators or the government or any other branch of governments not knowing what your right is, what your obligation is. And that will be bad because it will put you in a legal limbo. You wouldn't know what should what you should do next, what you should do afterwards. Um, you didn't know what sort of alternatives that you have. So I think knowledge of regulation is 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 important. But we do know that Indonesian also uh, cherish and appreciate having a good networks. And having a good networks doesn't really mean that it will give you a, a VIP pass to any other Indonesian. Um, institutions or um, or government institutions or private entities or whatsoever, but I think having good networks would means that um, you have the networks that would be able to uh, mentor you, explains you what are the necessities of building a good startups, what are the constraints of having a certain business models, and <coughs> of course um, in Indonesia. Um, B to B startups are pretty much established, but the hardest part is to create the startups that um, that's on the level of B to C or business to customers, because the acquisition cost is very high. So and this is where the networks will come come playing around after this. It's just like a chicken and egg situation. You can't really understand whether you create a good startup first or you have a. Uh, a big number of customer first. With a good investors, they will might as well um, able to mentor you in the right way and th- uh, guide you in the right directions, or even point you to the right people in the Indonesian government as well sometimes. And so yeah, having good networks will be an added plus afterwards. But having a good knowledge of your business model and the constraints that it has, the spectrum that you can play on, is the first thing that you need to have then if you want to take your startups to the next level, then it's, that's where the, regula- the, the network will come apart.
3: I Adit, with all knowledge you got from the two sides, Australia and Indonesia, what lessons can be learned from both countries? Um, I mean, I th- yeah, uh, from each other.
2: Development. Um, if I may take an example from the, um, the Gojek, Grab, and any other um, ride-sharing applications, and the regulation that has been implemented by the Ministry of uh, Transportations, I think it's a bit counterproductive because they're pretty much levelling up the, the costs of the ride-sharing applications to the point that it might be a bit similar with the, with the traditional or conventional uh, modes of transportation in Indonesia. And from that point, we can see basically that the, the consumer was not in the, in the highest priority of the government at that time. I know there have been several um, precedents in Australia uh, about the Airbnb, um, which I think may put some restrictions in um, Australian uh, startups, especially like Airbnb or any other uh, app-renting type of applications. What I can see from Australia is that they have a really strong Um, consumer central type of approach. And that doesn't exist in Indonesia, I think. I think there's still much to learn from Indonesia as well, especially in being able to see the opportunity that exists in the population.
3: Can I say that actually a regulator can walk side by side with innovation phenomena like this?
2: Well, I think regulators have to walk side by side. They need to... They're pretty much like the referees in this business. The only way to do that is for the regulators which might be applicable in both Indonesia and Australia, is to listen to the business societies and the people.
0: We like to wrap up every episode by learning about a fun fact or a slang word from our guests. So, Jared, what's a cool fun fact that you would like to share with us from Australia?
1: Australia had a Prime Minister called Harold Holt. Harold Holt was Prime Minister between 1966 and 1967. And he was one of the few Australian Prime Ministers who actually died while he was Prime Minister. But the circumstances of his death were very tragic. He went missing while he was swimming at the beach and his body was never found. So in order to commemorate his memory, a pool in Melbourne, a swimming pool, was named the Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Pool. Now, at one level, you could say if the Prime Minister died doing something that he loved, well, maybe it makes sense to name a place after him where you can do that activity namely swimming but I think it's also particularly Australian to name a swimming pool um, after a prime minister who presumably drowned uh, while he was swimming so that's my fun fact.
0: That's pretty funny Jared so they never found him?
1: No, as far as I'm aware, they never found the body. At the time, there was speculation that maybe the Chinese had kidnapped him by using a submarine off the coast of Australia, but I'm pretty sure that's just uh, urban uh, urban legend.
3: Adi, what's fun fact or cool slang word that you'd like to share from Indonesia?
2: Uh, I would say... Uh, <laughs> so that means... Well, if you put it in the phrase, it will usually sounds like... Ah, itu Barat, ah. Or in English it would be like Oh, it won't gonna be happen until the The item bought up for <laughs> for the horses. So, which is very unlikely to happen. So, that's what it means. It means something that's not going to happen at least anytime soon or it, w- it won't happen <coughs> at all.
3: Does that idiom um, appear or on trend lately?
2: Oh yes, certainly. Um, it was uh, President S.B. or Bambang know, put that in the trend um, when he addressed um, the concerns of people uh, concerning Ahok um, uh, trial back then. Um, he addressed the uh, fact that there were some allegations of his involvement in a movement to topple Ahok, and um, yeah, he mentioned that verse. You can actually search a hashtag for that. Oh,
0: Thank you for listening to Oz Indo in 30. See you at our next episode.